Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to the Crimson Coyote. I am your host, Jesse Askenazi. The Crimson Coyote podcast is a conversation series that explores how personal and cultural wounds are mended through creative practices. G.B. Jones has acquired international acclaim for her Super 8 films, Zines, and proto-Riot Girl Band Fifth Column. Active since the early 1980s, her works are milestones in independent film, publishing, and art rock, and primary sources for what later became known as queer core. GB has always been a compelling visual artist, best known for her all-female reprises of Tom of Finland's drawings, as well as her collages. She lives and works in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. GB's analog movies utilize guerrilla film tactics and embrace a non-budget credo she refers to as the aesthetics of poverty, which is as much about formal concerns as it is about the socio-political. She is one of the core members of the multidisciplinary post-punk band Fifth Column formed in 1981 by a group of women from Toronto who collaborated for almost 12 years. These women kickstarted the DIY art-making generation and inspired the following generations all over the world. Their commitment to working outside a capitalist structure made it impossible for them to claim their due as musicians and artists, despite having garnered worldwide notoriety for their work. GB also collaborated with controversial artist and filmmaker Bruce LaBruce, who helped create the hugely impactful JD's queer punk scene. JDs initially stood for juvenile delinquents, but also encompassed such youth cult icons as James Dean and J.D. Salinger. I learned about GB and her band from the documentary She Said Boom, The Story of Fifth Column. In the film, she's pictured in a black coat, black gloves, and black sunglasses with wild, long, bright red hair as a cigarette dangles from her mouth. Total legend. I'd like to thank V-Tape, Canada's leading artist-run, not-for-profit distributor of video art, for giving me access to this She Said Boom documentary for the purposes of this interview, as well as to GB's films. Featuring more than a 1,000 artists and over 5,000 titles, V-Tape's diverse collection includes works from the early 1970s to the present. I'm really excited for this one today, so stay tuned, and I can't wait for you to learn more about GB Jones. So I wanted to start by learning a little bit about um, your take on authority and institutions and where maybe some of that criticism stems from, because um, that seems to be a driving force in your work. And it's also very relevant to the moment that we're living in. So when did those notions kind of start forming for you? I think when I was, you know, probably around, um, I think I was around 12. I started going downtown in Toronto and um, the, the, there was like a, a, you know, politically radical culture was still um, present in Toronto because so many uh, draft dodgers had moved here from the States. Mm-hmm. And so in places like we have this uh, kind of community Kensington Market and it also extended to a place called Baldwin Street. There was like, you know, used clothing shops and they they were selling um, 
a newspaper called Gorilla, which was real, like a really, really radical um, <laughs> early 70s um, um, underground newspaper. Mm-hmm. And so I would go to the store and regularly buy this newspaper and become exposed to like all these ideas about Marxism and, you know, every, and so I started reading it at a very young age and became exposed to um, pretty radical political ideas. Yeah, 12 is pretty young, I would say. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I went in for the clothes and left with the newspaper because it was a lot cheaper. And it cost like a dollar and I had like hardly any money at all. It was cost effective. Yeah. yeah. Your progressive stance was just more cost effective. Um, what about, you know, what about like your, I've been curious about like your home life and upbringing. Were there, was it like a kind of repressive household? Was there stuff that you wanted to escape from, you know, being a girl and a woman and, and your, the way you were raised? Uh, it was good and bad. Um, Oh, well, yeah, it's, it, I was just thinking about this the other day. It was weird because I had a whole music career from like the age of, um, I would say nine to 12, I was in a church choir and we were, you know, obviously singing every week, but also like special events. You know, I was, um, we would go caroling at Christmas time. This is why I was thinking of it because. Yeah, sure. And, uh, it was really like a music career that lasted for a couple, like a three years, I could not years. And uh, oh, why am I talking about that? <laughs> oh, I was I was asking like um, the the household you grew up in, if and if you maybe kind of rebelled against that in in your later music work. I I didn't know that you uh, had the the church choir background. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I did rebel. So at 12, like I started going downtown and started reading Gorilla magazine. And and I met a friend at school whose father was a professor at university, who was also a Marxist and also an atheist. So all of a sudden, I decided, oh, right, there is no God. What am I doing in the church choir? I quit the church choir. And and, quite a quite a radical flip there, going yeah, from yeah. fire to basement shows. Yeah, yeah. So that that was part of it. Um, my grandfather was a minister, which was why I was so involved in the church. And my family was not really that religious, but it was mm-hmm. just part of, of the tradition in the family. So there was that repression. Like I wasn't allowed to read comics. I was you know, not supposed to listen to popular music. I was supposed to listen to classical or jazz. Like on my mother's side of the family though, my uncle was one of the people who had brought uh, noted jazz musicians to Massey Hall called the Quintet. And it it came out as an album in the fifties. And it was a big part of that uh, jazz scene. He wrote a column for a, a newspaper here in town. So there was a weird kind of, dynamic in our family of half being kind of really radical and the other half being really repressive. <clears throat> yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, having, yeah, that dichotomy there, you know? Yeah. So I had to kind of, I was in the middle and I had to try and try and balance it mm-hmm. in between the warring factions of my family. <laughs> and so I think that's part of the emphasis of wanting to get out of it. Sure. Um, away from the warring factions. 
Yes, well said. <laughs> How did you kind of get uh, introduced to the the underground art and music scene that was taking place in Toronto at the time when you got involved? Um, and like, how did you relate to those people who were part of that community? You mean later, like punk community? Yeah, like when you started, um, you know, there was a point I, I remember hearing about that you kind of talked about sort of living on the streets, so to speak, um, with other... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, yeah, then about, like, when I was... Uh, when I was 14, I um, had a boyfriend, <laughs> 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 I rode a motorcycle, would pick me up from school, and he started, and he, uh, he was actually married, he was 36, and his wife, they were, they were Roman Catholic, <laughs> and his wife was, uh, his wife was gay, but she didn't feel like she could divorce him. Mm -hmm. uh, so th th we started going downtown, the three of us, to visit uh, like the gay places in town. And mm -hmm. I, I started meeting all these kids that were on the street. Mm -hmm. They just became my friends. Mm -hmm. I just go downtown and hang out with them all the time. And we started going to clubs. And there was like, uh, you know, the kind of clubs where you, they don't have liquor licenses. So you can just go dance and stuff. So that was my introduction to that whole world and a lot of those kids actually went on to form punk bands it's quite right. interesting uh so some of them were on the street and some of them were not on the street some of them were just like going to high school and stuff like me and uh but uh yeah that was a good introduction to the, the kind of behind this what what's going on behind the scenes in the world for sure and kids, most of these kids were kicked out of home because they were gay mm -hmm. or let right mm -hmm. so um we just formed this kind of large kind of community. We'd all be looking out for each other. And that was my first sense of community, really. Okay. That's yeah. Funny. And in terms of the people that went on to, let's say, form punk bands, um, when you heard that there was a group of cool girls forming a band, you pretended you knew how to play the drums so you could be part of that. What was your approach to drumming? And also, why did you so badly want to join them and have that outlet oh i'd already been in a band previously mm -hmm. called bunny and the lakers and that was like my my role in that band was to take photographs but i was a band member it was a people were really you know exploring whole new concepts of what a band could be in those early days of uh punk it was really really exciting so you know and then i went on and played with a couple of other friends and so when um Oh, yeah. So when my friends uh, in the first band, I was in Bunny Lakers, one of them moved to London and one of them moved to New York. I was telling my friend Jack Brown, <laughs> as a painter, oh, you know, I was really depressed mm. and was <laughs> over. And he said, oh, I know these girls that are starting a band. They need a drummer. So, yeah, I just uh, I just really missed that connection, that musical kind of connection with people something that I'd had in my life previously when I was in the choir. And then, you know, I was very much drawn to that kind of like mu musical communities, mm -hmm. even the kids on the street. Mm -hmm. It was like a community that was also kind of part of the whole glitter thing, the glitter. Uh, it wasn't really a movement. It was a moment in time before. Glitter um, meaning like glam 
or glitter pants. Yeah, yeah. In Toronto, we called it glitter. In other parts of the world, I think it was called glam. Okay, sure. The New York Dolls. New York Dolls, right. That whole scene. And that was very, you know, integrated into the kind of like gay culture of the time, really. Yeah. Well, it's it's called glitter, so sure. Exactly. (laughs) Then, you know, that was always, uh, you know, I I really liked being part of a musical community. Yeah, it uh, seems like that was always really a part of you. Yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, I just naturally wanted to uh, maintain that kind of community. What was Toronto like at the time that you formed Fifth Column? What was going on socially, um, politically? in that time that um, inspired your band? Oh, it was very repressive. Like there were, um, you know, the police were raiding the bathhouses and arresting, you know, uh, uh, surveillance in in washrooms, arresting, you know, gay people. There was very much a war between the gay community and the police going on constantly. And in every other way, it was also, you know, the kind of city where, Guys are driving around in cars, screaming and yelling at people, uh, very aggressive, very violent. You know, you really have to, uh, I don't know, uh, worry about your safety at all times. Um, And it was, again, very hypocritical because at the time, Toronto had a a little nickname, Toronto the Good, because, you know, everything closed on Sunday. Everyone went to church. I didn't realize, I guess, I mean, I've never been there and I don't know that much about it, but I didn't quite realize it had that reputation, at least at that time. Well, it liked to promote itself that way. Okay. That was the promotion that it gave out to the world. (laughs) Obviously, it was very untrue. It was just a facade. And that was like kind of... um, the thing that was most, uh, uh, um, I think, um, obvious about those days is the, the distance between the way Toronto was promoting itself and the reality of what Toronto sure. was. It was very difficult. Uh, you know, it, it was very, um, I moved to Toronto, you know, I lived in um, a rooming house. That was my first place that I lived in, you know, and uh, that was what you could afford to live in. Mm-hmm. it was expensive it was uh you know and if you were didn't have a lot of money you lived in like the poor part of town you went to like goodwill to shop and stuff right <laughs> yeah it was not what they were promoting as the idea of what toronto was but you know everything would close on sunday there was limited bus service mm-hmm. it was very hard to get around um wow yeah and uh, when you guys were all together, I know there was a, as a band, I know there was a lot of conflict that went on, but you said that that clashing was an essential part of the creative process. And that really intrigued me, especially as female musicians, um, to kind of have that outlet. Uh, how can you elaborate more about that clashing and, and it contributing to your creative process? Yeah, I think it was integral in a lot of ways because, uh, you know, the making of the music would become a very personal thing and it would reflect, you know, the way that each member was getting along with another member, how, you know, at what point they would 
introduce their own contribution into a song, what it would mean to the other members. It all had personal undertones. There was like, we were building layers all the time. <laughs> so sure. a very complex social and musical and creative kind of like, uh, uh, I don't know what to call it really. I mean, you could look at it as being like a cake with layers, right? I like to look at things like cakes. So I'll <laughs> yeah. go ahead and do that. <laughs> or a stew. I always return to cooking. It's like a stew. You add more ingredients and you kind of build it up over time. Or, mm -hmm. you know, it's like a recipe, really. And so, then it doesn't even necessarily ever have to be done, mm -hmm. right? It'd be a pot that's sitting on the stove and it's a soup and you have some one day and then you put more things in the next day and you just keep building and building. And that's kind of how we uh you know built up our songs over time yeah but all of the personal relationships would be reflected in the music yeah definitely you can hear that um your album it was called to sir with hate and you scared people as feminists because they viewed you as you know quote unquote man haters what was that experience like oh yeah it was like well, it started even earlier with our first single. Um, you know, I took a, a photograph of a friend of mine. I was taking multiple exposures and I had her, like we were standing on a roof at her house and she was jumping off the window ledge. And so people were uh, really upset. They were, they, you know, phoned up our record label and said, uh, you, this is, you know, so horrible. You've got a picture of a, a woman committing suicide on the cover. They, this was their interpretation. I mean, if you if you looked at the picture, that would not necessarily be. Wow, what, that's so fascinating. That that, that, that was the interpretation. Like that 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 must be what an image of a woman and another woman. You know that like the fact that that's their takeaway is is quite revealing in itself. I know, right? It really is, and because you can see, because it's one woman, but you can see her twice. So you can see her inside and then outside. And, you know, I, I would have thought that it would be obvious that I was standing on the roof taking the picture. How could I be suspended in the air taking a picture with someone jumping out a window, right? It seems yeah. obvious to me that it was not someone committing suicide. But, you know, you can't, uh, you can't stop people from interpreting your work. So, you know, somebody called up the record label saying, you should throw those, that group off, the, off your label. This is so horrible, you know. Wow. It started at that point, and then it just kind of continued from there. Everything we did seemed to be very controversial in Toronto and very upsetting for a lot of people. So we just had to learn to live with it, really. Did you kind of carry that energy? Like, did that become kind of an addictive sort of uh, the way that, you know, like you said, your motto was like divine and pink flamingos, right? That that the word that uh, and that any word that was bad to describe you was good and the worst <laughs> things someone could call you the better was that kind of like attractive to you well not really like that's that we didn't set out to do that mm -hmm. we that we had to kind of adopt that attitude just to keep going mm -hmm. the onslaught of constant criticism right so we just had to say okay well for you that's a negative for us we're going to learn to how we can work with that and make it into something uh you know constructive 
for us. That's interesting. I because I do think from the outside, maybe the way media has portrayed you or the way academia has portrayed what the work you've done, I would have thought that that was intentional, that you were kind of going for that. But it sounds like it was really more of a coping mechanism for just trying to to be an artist and oh, be a woman was, at that time. Yeah. It, we didn't set out to like get a lot of negative attention. No. Right. That wasn't really our goal. I mean, we had political ideas that we knew people would be, ups, you know, uh, sure. adverse to. We didn't really expect them to get quite as upset as they t- did. Right. Owning <laughs> right. our record label, telling them to kick us off the label, things like that. Like, it's just like, yeah, yeah. No, so, it's- uh, Right. Because I've been thinking about like the idea of like uh, being a contrarian lately, particularly because a friend of mine and I were having a conversation about it. And he said that about contrarians, that if you're the one rejecting everything, then no one can reject you. And I've been thinking about this for days since he said that to me, because I have a lot of friends and probably myself to some degree that can maybe relate to that, um, that idea that, People, I think sometimes, yeah, people who are sort of anti uh, a lot and who kind of feed off that is can be a sort of self-protection from being rejected in like mass culture. Do you relate to that at all yourself personally? I see how that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems an interesting strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Not conscious, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, and you know, there's that kind of movement, the sad girl movement. (laughs) were resistant to like the whole thing of smile and you know that whole I think we we kind of got into that because like people were phoning up saying oh your record covers women committing suicides so we were kind of like oh okay we're then we're a goth band right like gotcha. we're not going to be happy we weren't really interested in being happy on stage sure <laughs> I don't blame you so, so we did by our own natural inclination we we started becoming like um, you know, uh, a model of a uh, uh, performer that would not, uh, who's, we, I think we were entertaining. We had dance, we had dancers, we had films, but we ourselves didn't smile and laugh and try to like make jokes and entertain the audience. Yeah, that wasn't your role. No, that wasn't our goal or our role to make people <laughs> happy. It was not a goal at all. Okay, yes. Uh, when you made a compilation tape of some fifth column songs, um, you called it the sound of music falling apart. Right. Uh, which I really love. What did you mean by that exactly? Uh, I think with our music at that point in time, people people didn't really get it. And I, you know... Um, yeah, you were ahead of the curve. A lot <laughs> A lot of times we consciously were trying to create sounds that were kind of unmusical. Like we, you know, especially when Caroline and I would, um, you know, we'd get together like a Friday night. Our idea of fun on a Friday night was just go to the rehearsal space and play music for like four hours, right? We'd try to recreate sounds in our environment. Like let's write a song where it sounds like a washing machine. Yeah. some musical appliance like we were really interested in that concrete music Mm -hmm. music concrete Mm -hmm. and uh using uh our environment and so like sometimes 
our instruments, especially my drums at that point, would just literally, like it was, a. I think I bought my drum set for $50. It was <laughs> such a cheap set, it would literally be falling apart. So this would all add in, like we tried to integrate that falling apartness into the sound of the band sure. at the same time. And shorting out things, you know, we all had cheap instruments. We all had uh, kind of, um, you know, stuff that had been repaired, stuff that wasn't necessarily uh, working properly. So we just kind of tried to integrate the sound of things falling apart right into our sound. It's interesting because it's like the creation of destruction in a way. Yeah. and But it was kind of literal at the same yeah. time. It yeah. It was metaphorical. But as as a metaphor, you know, it was uh, also to do with the dismantling musical ideas that we felt were like uh, entrenched, that had become entrenched in a, uh, in patriarchal ideas. I think that was a story. Like we we wanted to wrench music out of like the ideas that we found were you know. Yeah, like in traditional rock and roll or even punk yeah, rock, exactly. there's a lot of kind of um, alpha male <laughs> energy, obviously, um, that probably also can be demeaning for women. Um, so is that kind of what you were coming up against? Yeah. yeah. Even in those scenes? Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Another thing that I found interesting about your band and particularly you is that you found power in constructing identity and you said something artificial had more meaning than something with the pretense of authenticity because you chose and created it. Kind of reminds me like of a Warholian thing a little bit. Um, But can you elaborate on that and how maybe you feel you've constructed your identity in like an artful way? Oh yeah, we were, you know, since we first started the fifth column, we were all engaged in that project of, you know, reinventing ourselves. We, you know, when we first started the band, we all had like our first name and then just an initial for our last name, because that was a way of rejecting like a, a surname that mm-hmm. would um, a patriarchal lineage. <clears throat> so that lasted for a while. <laughs> then we thought, well, that's we're, why don't we just change our last names and <laughs> go with a whole, you know, different persona? So we do things like that over time, try out different uh, personas. In yeah, even aesthetically, you have a really cool. I mean, I, when I saw the documentary about your band, I was like, who is this cool ass motherfucker, like with wild red hair and. Uh, yeah, even that, like, did you have ideas aesthetically about what you wanted to, how you wanted to be uh, perceived by people? Oh, yeah, yeah. So that was, the names were one part, and also we were very interested in style, Mm -hmm. uh, clothes, and, but especially with me and Caroline, you know, all of our clothing choices would come with, like, references, Mm. You know, I had a white leather jacket and that the reference point was like Nancy Sinatra and the Wild Angels, picking up female role models from the past and kind of working with ideas like uh, images of women mm-hmm. that were more um, progressive, exciting, uh, uh, you know, non-patriarchal. Sure. And so, you know, we'd, we'd uh, uh, 
do a lot of things around. Caroline was interested in like her, she was French. So in her uh, her upbringing, she was, uh, she had like uh, Francois Hardy and uh, uh, France Gall and uh, women like that from the, the French, French pop gal there from the French really amazing and exciting so she brought that element into the band and um and the kind of outfits and clothes that they would wear and so we kind of all integrated these things and you know along with like 70s radicals mm. you know 70s radical feminists and like 60s like flower children just whatever we just mix it up and there'd always be reference points and that just um you know we tried to work with those ideas too but um yeah, I see that in your art as well. Um, like I, I, in some of your drawings, like I, I noticed you did this drawing of Barbara Steele and I was like, oh, that's so cool. Because uh, yeah, I love yeah. old uh, Italian horror stuff. So oh, yeah, yeah. It's the amazing. Giallo films and everything. Yeah, I love those Gothic Italian films with Barbara Steele. It's all incredible. Yes. And then... You know, there was a period, though, where you guys, as as underground as you were, there was a period where you got a, were starting to get a lot more media coverage and attention, but you really rejected fame uh, wholeheartedly. Why did you want to stay underground? I mean, because I feel that you really did stay underground and you are, I mean, I feel like, you know, more people should be educated about you and the work you've done, but you never kind of bent to our typical I don't know moral narcissism stuff and that's really admirable because even our most radical rock stars or poets even or you know it's so deeply entrenched in uh status and uh again narcissism and you really backed away from that so you could continue to make your art why has that been important to your life well, I think at the, a certain point, we did get a lot of attention. And what became really apparent as we kind of were on the fringes of the industry, the music industry, you know, I think in a lot of ways, we weren't appreciated in Toronto or in Canada. And so we started to go to the States, like starting in the with the release of our first album, we were much uh, more popular in the United States states we were much more appreciated and so we started uh you know encountering people from the music industry at that point but what we quickly realized is that you have to lose control of your project uh other people want to be in control so you you know and we we try to uh uh you know for us Fifth Column was a, a project that wasn't just a musical project, you know, it did involve film, it did involve performance that, you know, we, we, we uh, uh, did um, work in theater, we were part of like plays, we, we did a lot of things. And also one of the things that interested us was control, having control of our image and determining what that would be in photographs mm -hmm. and in clothes we'd wear and how we approach the media. But when you get into the industry, you, the, you're not allowed to have that kind of control over your image. You're not allowed. You you can't tell a photographer, well, I don't won't do that, or yeah. you know, unless you're a huge star. Very but. few, even I mean, even the huge stars, maybe even to some degree, have less control um, because they're being they run. Do. Yeah, yeah. I remember Bjork being interviewed uh, one time about how she's 
maybe one of like three artists who has full artistic control. It was like her because she'd been doing it her way since she was a very little girl. So no one could come in and tell her otherwise. And maybe Prince. But beyond them, I mean, if you have huge megastars, there's so many moving parts. There's so many people who are profiting off you. Yeah. Um, exactly. become a cash cow. So, um, but, um, another really interesting aspect of your work is that you said this, the movement, well, which became a movement, uh, queer core started in your, in your apartment, in your living room. How did that kind of come up? Um, yeah, I was, we were all working at a restaurant and Caroline, introduced me to Bruce LaBruce, who was also working there. And, uh, you know, we started talking about film and stuff. Caroline and I had been putting out a fanzine with our friend Candy called Hyde. And we had, you know, compilation tapes. We put out a compilation tape every year and a, and a, and a print scene. And um, we'd been sending those to the States as well. They would, you know, um, play them on the college radio stations. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so, um, I thought with with uh, with Bruce, I, I said, well, you know, we should do a, a zine around this idea of queer core that we were kind of inventing. Yeah. As we as we had breaks at the restaurant, we'd be talking about this stuff, and uh, <laughs> I was listening to a lot of my friend Candy's uh, hardcore bands, and they often had songs about you know queer issues. They weren't necessarily pro queer, but. They, they were still writing about it. And I thought, oh, yeah, we had our song, The Fairview Mall Story on our first album that was addressing like this police surveillance of uh, gay men in washrooms and, you know, ruining their lives. And this was, was based on a true story that happened in um, St. Catharines, Ontario, where one, one man had committed suicide after he'd been exposed by the police. You know, they, mm. they released all the information into the communities. And of course, all the people wow. would lose their jobs and their wives would divorce them their children would speak to them and you know people would commit suicide so it was just horrible so we had that song and I noticed other bands had songs and it all seemed to um all seemed to add up to something mm-hmm. that was a, a turning point in the culture where all of a sudden people were actually talking about this uh queer gay stuff and releasing songs about it so I put together a compilation tape and started sending it out to friends and I called it Homocore. And then I thought, wow, we should really do this zine. So I talked to Bruce and then we started doing this zine in my living room, uh, pasting and cutting and taking photographs at our parties and just putting it all into this scene. I would have and- liked to be at some of those parties. It sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> oh my God. By the end of the night, most of the people were just on the floor, <laughs> rolling around. It was just like becoming one with the floor, (laughs) throwing into the tile or whatever was down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Running to the backyard to have sex or in the washrooms. It was just insane. Wow. (laughs) It makes us all look like a bunch of, uh, you know. No, well, I was just taking the pictures. Yeah, that's the the best role, though. You get to really see everything. Yeah. So when you made these zines, it was kind of like about being caught between subcultures of being punk or being queer. A lot of the people around you guys and the artists you hung out with. Um, what was like the content that you typically would feature in those zines? Yeah, it was the same thing 
it reflected, you know, my own um, personal home reality, that kind of dichotomy between repression and um, something a lot more exciting, you know, and progressive. So at the same time, being in the punk world, there was a lot of like really regressive male attitude, you know, that we were talking about. And then there was a much more progressive side to punk, which is why I think all of us got into it is because we really liked the involvement of all the women in punk, you know, the slits, the raincoats. Those are the bands we were interested in. Susie and the Banshees, Lydia Lunch, um, the list goes on and on. Yeah, yeah. So when it came to, um, now I forgot the question. I'm sorry, Jesse. <laughs> I did too. Oh, that's completely it. fine. No, I mean, oh no, I was asking about the content that that went into the zines. But yeah, you basically you answered that though. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was very much part of the content too, reflecting you know our interest in women performers, people, marginalized people, um, mm. people on the outskirts that weren't included, you know, in the official dialogue. You know, the official. There's always an official uh, idea of like, say, punk was like the Sex Pistols, the Clash, you know, we were not interested in the official idea. The same thing with the gay culture. With the, the official gay culture, you know, there were certain types of activists that were good. And then there was like the type of people that I had associated with when I was younger, they were the bad people. <laughs> they were the people you, you didn't want as part of your, uh, you know, official idea. Why was that? Why were they bad? Well, you know, they were the glitter kids. They were, you know, trashy. They were <laughs> rock and roll kids. They okay. were like, mess, they were messy ones. Messy ones. They weren't the serious activists who, you know, okay. marches and had the petitions. You know, not that there's anything wrong with that. But, uh, yeah. You know, it's the exclusion that is right. the part that I object to. You know, what, <laughs> what doesn't, what does, what doesn't uh, look good to uh, you know, the gay world was very concerned about what looked good to the straight world. Interesting. At that point in time. Yeah, I mean, probably out of necessity to yeah, be, yeah. You know, get your foot through the door. And partly because they were trying to, you know, further a political agenda. So you didn't want the messy parts seen. Mm-hmm. But I've always been interested and attracted to the messy parts. So the same with the uh, whole queer court thing. I was interested in all the messy parts. And but well, let's put that in the zine. You know, the hardcore kids that were like, you know, having their bands and uh, yeah. it was just exciting. So that's the content. We took pictures of our friends that would come over to parties and everyone was kind of like working on films. Like most of our friends, because we had a band, they were either doing films or photographs or they were artists. Wow. And then we'd meet other bands that we we'd meet on tour and want to connect with them. Like, we met, Such like, a special time. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. That I don't feel like could ever be replicated again. Um, no, I don't think so. Did not you, the same way. Yeah, no, not, yeah, sure. There, there will always be people um, who are subverting, but yeah, it will just manifest in different ways. But that communal part, it was really special. Um did you put your drawings as well into any of those zines? Because I, I really love uh, your drawings. I think they're great. Thank you. Yes, I have the drawings in, J, uh, in JDs. Okay. I, yeah, because I wanted to ask you about your Tom Girl series, which I think is really I, cool and a, and a brilliant idea. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I started those do, uh, with the sole purpose of putting them in JDs. Oh, okay. I, 
I was modeling JDs on a kind of a magazine I'd seen from the 1950s called and 60s called Physique Pictorial. Uh, we lived across the street from a um, from a place called Bookland that sold all used uh, magazines and, and books and comics. And uh, I found copies of them there. And it was like, there was like, you know, it's from a period, they were called pornography, but you know, it had Tom of Finland drawings, it had models and jock straps. It was not really pornography. Yeah, not real por- hardcore oh, pornography, no, no, just of images. <laughs> it's the kind of images that would like, you know, that it would, you can find them easily now anywhere. They're, they're not restricted sure. by any means, but in those days it was like, yeah. ooh. <laughs> and so I found those magazines fascinating because they kind of developed an idea of a community in the, in the zine, in the magazine. And so I wanted to do the same thing, obviously, with JD. So, you know, um, I thought it would be good to have drawings as, and comics, articles, you know, uh, um, fiction. Of course, mm-hmm. he was writing his stories. He was doing fiction stories. And so I started doing these uh these drawings modeled on Tom of Finland, just the same way they appeared in Physique Pictorial, but with women, obviously, because I thought there was a lot of ideas I could express in these drawings about, you know, the kind of culture we live in, the male culture, the authoritarianism and position of women in society. Yeah. An ideal vehicle to address the issues I was thinking about. Yeah, it really was. Um, And you also are a filmmaker and I heard you once talk about how the history of experimental film is also a queer history. Um, Tell me just a little bit about your love for experimental film and why that's been an important um, outlet for your art as well. Yeah, that was, I think, one of the reasons why I think it was so easy for us to do what we did and start like doing a queer scene, and you know, is because we were really immersed in in the experimental film world in Toronto. We were going to a place called the Funnel. They had opened like, and it was a uh, cinema totally devoted to experimental film. And every night of the week, they'd have so cool. Yeah, so we lived right around the corner, and I was going like constantly. We were all going constantly, and we started to do almost like the second year, I think, that the band was together. We started doing benefits for them. They had a gallery there. We had a few show. I had a few, like, was part of a few shows in the gallery. And uh, learning about the experimental film world, right from the beginning, so many gay people have been involved. In the 1940s, Gregory Markopoulos um, and James Boughton and then into the oh and Kenneth Anger and then into the yeah my favorite (laughs) yeah those same people along with Marie Menken and a lot of you know women filmmakers found um found their voices it could be heard much easier in the experimental film world whereas it would be almost impossible at that time to uh have your films seen and taken seriously in Hollywood you know that makes total sense and I I don't know why I haven't really ever thought about that from the female perspective but um that sort of female gaze instead of male gaze uh you could they were able to actually access that yeah yeah so you had amazing female uh filmmakers like Shirley Clark um 
Marie Menken, uh, Barbara Rubin, who I absolutely love, um, Barbara Hammer later on. Um, you know, it did it did kind of intersect also with feminists, the early feminists, and well, not early. Early feminists are very Wollstonecraft, but in the 1700s, but um, <laughs> 1970s uh, uh, feminists, the re yeah. kind of revival of feminism, if you want to call it that. Um, yeah. But, you know, so all of your art and your music and your films, you know, especially you said your films are political statements about sexuality, anti-capitalism, liberation and anti-oppression. Um, and those, you know, we've talked a lot about it on like a sociological level, but how did creating this work help you and your just identity as GB Jones on a personal and like emotional level? That's a good question. I just can't, um, for me, I can't imagine a life without art in some form. Like I said, as soon as I was like nine, I started, you know, with a musical career. And so it seems so integral to my life. Like I was, and even at that point I was drawing you know, I'd always been doing art my whole life. I just can't really separate life from art in a lot of ways. And I think that's part of how uh, how I look at the world, you know, at, through the lens of art. Mm -hmm. A lot of people look at the world through the lens of politics, through religion, you know, whatever their chosen um, interest might be. But I look at the world through the lens of art. So it helps me understand the world, interpret the world, um, make sense of it, um, position myself. And, you know, it, it functions in many ways to keep me uh, alive, really. Yeah. If there wasn't art, I don't know how I could stand it, right? <laughs> I no, I, I mean, sure, same. Yeah, I, I don't either. Uh, would not be pretty. It would not be. <laughs> I don't know, I'd have to come up with some really weird hobby. Maybe I'd like become a shuffleboard, you know, professional. I don't know, I would have to do something compulsively, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I just said shuffleboard because I'm in Florida, so I'm programmed. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but now you have, I was really excited because no, no one can see this, but um, I have your lovely CD. Oh, yes. Your album. So I was really excited to listen. So the band is called Opera Arcana. Yeah. And yeah. the soundtrack for a film called Down Road by Kelly. Okay, I'm going to, is it Widrick? Kelly Widrick? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I said it. Um, yeah. Super cool. I love the back. Uh, what it, is this like a take on the what that famous painting, you know, with the what was it called? Yes. Uh, American Gothic. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There again, I'm kind, we're kind of reversing like the whole patriarchal thing. All of a sudden, he it's not a man with a pitchfork. It's a woman with a broom, which is a symbol of like witchcraft. Paganism, yeah. Paganism. Also the home, the hearth, like, you know, it, mm. but, uh, but um, once it's inflected with the idea of witchcraft, it becomes something, the, the idea of a, the home and the hearth as a woman's place becomes something very different when it's infused with, you know, magic and witchcraft and all sure. the politics that go 
along with that. So we're playing with those ideas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the music, you play the xylophone on it. Did you ever play that before? No, I didn't. Oh my God, I love it. It sounds to me, like to me, the music reminds me of like, if you went to like a Southern Gothic town, but it was like in the winter and there were creepy children everywhere. (laughs) All I can say is thank you. That's pretty much exactly what we're going for. (laughs) Perfect. That is exactly what I took away from it. I'm happy that I interpreted it in a way you feel comfortable with. Very much. It's very much a compliment. Thank you so much. Yeah. um, So that's cool that you're doing, you know, these other music projects and these new finding new ways of playing music. I love that you just, I love that you just have the, the balls or well, even that's a misogynistic way of saying it. Um, but I love that you have the guts to just be like, you know what, I'm going to record a soundtrack for this film. And I've never played the xylophone before, but fuck it. I have played a xylophone a really long time ago on one fifth column song, ages, okay. ages ago. And so I've always loved the xylophone. And when, when Minus Smile and I got together, I started playing it on a more regular basis. So then I kind of learned what it what we can do with it and I just love you know the overtones of the creepy you know Italian giallo films the creepy children also has like a badlands vibe yeah yeah I thought there's so much you can do with this instrument it's just unlimited potential and of course the film is only 10 minutes so you know obviously we have very short pieces on this cd but I really wanted to put them out you know kind of promote like I think you know we need to like really um people making short films independent filmmakers you know we really need to bring more attention to them and I'm just trying to like be part of that process as well definitely for Kelly and her her work because I think she's an amazing filmmaker and um yeah it was a very exciting kind of collaboration I really enjoyed it yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. I'm happy to have it and that you sent it to me. Um, so another question about being an artist, which of course comes up, I think a lot for people is what did you have to sacrifice all these years in order to make art and live authentically as an artist? Um, those, I know you've been through a lot of times that have not been easy um, for, for that sacrifice. So I was hoping you could talk a little about that. Well, you know, I don't have a lot of money, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, you and me both. I'm recording in my bedroom here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, at a certain point, I think I could have said, mm-hmm. you know, uh, okay, you know, here I am put me in whatever roles in whatever movies, take whatever pictures you want. I could have given up all that control that, you know, was, I felt integral to my career (laughs) and made a lot of money, Mm -hmm. but I just couldn't bring myself to do that. It didn't interest me. Right. You know, there's that song, I think, I can't remember, but like Nico wrote a song once about being a model, about the dehumanization process. And, you know, standing around in your, if you're in a band and you're, people are taking pictures and they're, you know, and they're telling you what to do in videos, it becomes, you're not a model, but it becomes very much like that. You're just kind of a prop to their ideas. Yeah. 
all of a sudden you're not the artist anymore, really. Like, how could you claim to be the artist when you're just following directions from other people? Like, of course, there's acting. That's a whole nother thing. But, and that's obviously an art form, but becoming a commercial product is not artful to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of had to, uh, I just couldn't do it. You lived in, I mean, you had some pretty rough conditions, especially when you were younger, like um, the house that you guys all lived in. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. That was quite something. There was a, a hole in my ceiling. <laughs> and, a hole in the ceiling. Okay. And, uh, and as I, I filmed it for a movie called The Troublemakers and the raccoons were living in the seal in, in the um, space between the ceiling and the, and the roof. And they'd be peering through the hole looking at me. So I started filming them and put it into this movie. I first filmed them because I was planning on suing the landlord. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I just wanted to get a document of the fact that it was actually happening. And then I did with raccoons, <laughs> right? And cockroaches. And, yeah. Yeah. The raccoons on a couple of occasions would fall through the hole in the ceiling Thank God I wasn't home at the time it happened, but my roommates had to run around and capture the little baby raccoons and take them outside so they could rejoin their mother. Wow. And yeah, it was insane. And we Yeah, so so you know, like I said, like I commend you that for you knew what it required um to be the kind of artist you wanted to be, to stay outside the system, so to speak. Yeah. And you've continued to do that throughout your life. Um, were those sacrifices worth it? Well, this is the kind of like, yeah, you really have to question what's going to happen with people nowadays because in those days we did that so we could have a practice space. So the band could have a practice space. And, you know, I have to say having a practice space in your home where you can constantly practice like every day was, you know, uh, you can't even put a price on on the value of mm. that, how much it meant to the band and our creative process and being able to write the type of songs we did that were really quite complex and kind of orchestral. And it would never have happened if we could only go to rehearsal space once a week and practice like the songs just to keep, you know, in practice. So, and now I wonder how kids, like I think a lot of um I think it's really sad because a lot of kids will never have that opportunity to be in a band because housing prices being what they are, it's impossible to find places to practice now. Like you yeah, could, you're right. It's in Toronto, really thick. <laughs> you could never find a place where you could practice in a home in Toronto now. It's I just mean, New York, same, uh, unless, the, you know, there's a lot of rich kids there, though, so they can. Exactly. So now it's only the rich people that are going to be artists. It's only the trust fund kids that will be able to have bands, to make movies, because everything is just so expensive. That's how I, I mean, that is how I feel a lot about art in general. It's a kind of big reason why I've taken a bit, a, st a little bit of a step back from working in areas of contemporary art, just because being exposed to people who only have access to it that are the ultra elite and wealthy um, while some of them were, were wonderful, um, it's just not interesting to me to only, um, be around or catering to that demographic. Oh yeah, totally. So that was, I think, important for us, you know, having our voices heard and we were not rich people, we were poor people. 
And a lot of our songs, like Caroline would write lyrics, you know, like our song Bad Madeline is totally about a woman on welfare and how she's trying to make ends meet and how she ends up robbing a bank because she has no money. Mm -hmm. This kind of theme reoccurs all over and over again in lots of our lots of our songs. We really try and address that issue of like the, the inequity of like people living in poverty, just the way we were. And I really fear that, you know, how how valid uh, the art world, the music world is if it's only the voices of rich people. No, I mean, I, I 100% agree with you. And I think that ultimately um, artists who are just living for the pure sake of their art will find ways to do, to do it. It's going to look different than how it did in the past, but that will always exist. It's just going to have to find new manifestations of that oh yeah yeah it totally that's why i think opera con is interesting because we went from i went from like a band that was like you know guitars drums organ very loud to like a much softer sound with like a little toy xylophone synthesizer and somebody playing like an acoustic guitar so it's kind of a shift in um dyna the dynamic because that's what we could play in the apartment without getting complaints from the um, neighbors. So you find a way to create the music within the parameters of like how much you can economically afford, how much you're permitted to do in due to your economic situation. And I do think it's true. We'll have to look in the future for different kinds of instruments, different kinds of um, like, you know, um, recording conditions maybe it'll be more digital uh, digital maybe it'll you know people will be using their computer yeah like a lot of younger people are uploading music to soundcloud and yeah. doing totally independently um which you is interesting have, yeah yeah youtube channels yeah exactly. it's all great and there there's always a way you can always find a way so um <laughs> in conclusion your method as an artist um, and a musician was, uh, you know, to affect change was to introduce subversive elements into a culture that you were in opposition to. Yeah. Um, how do you think that in your way that you've created change and how has your life benefited from being in that position? Well, that's really not for me to say, though, Jesse. I can't say what, what I've that's for other people to judge, right? I would have to, you know, leave it to other people to, to decide that. For me, it's a way of life. It, it's not really a choice in the end. It's just the way I live. It's an addiction. If I see a piece of paper, I have to draw on it. I can't stop myself. <laughs> if I see an instrument, I have this compulsion to try and see what I can do with it. I just can't stop myself. So I don't really know how I ever could have done anything else. Definitely. It's, it's so hardwired into me to want to do these kind of things. Definitely. And I, I think I just, I think what people, I want people to take from that is that even though I have no money and my films are like, you know, absolutely no budget mm -hmm. music, sometimes it was like higher production values and sometimes lower production values. But, you know, and the instruments, as I said, were falling apart. We still went ahead and tried stuff with them. And I think I'm just hoping to try and encourage people 
to do things, even if they are in a situation where they don't have a lot of money, you know, uh, don't feel like you should not do things because it's not glossy. It's not perfect. Let's forget about the idea of perfection. Let's. Yep. Let I mean, I, perfect. yeah, I relate to that a lot. I mean, even in making this project in this podcast project, I'm like, well, okay, Michelle Obama's releasing a podcast the same week I am. So <laughs> I have some competition. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I could have thought my way out of this a thousand times. And I've tried to, um, because there is a lot of shame, I think, when you, you know, whatever, it's conditioned into us that if we're not in positions with a ton of money or a ton of social status, that we're somehow less worthy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. To express ourselves, even yeah. to, or to just be seen. Like sometimes I'm like, it's, you know, I've thought to myself, I can't put myself out there because nobody cares. So, right. so right. you're oh, saying God. it's just about kind of doing it anyway. <laughs> I just do it. And don't feel the shame. Like this is what I learned on the street with those kids. Don't feel the shame. Throw more glitter in your hair and just keep <laughs> going. Stagger downstairs in your platform shoes, and then years later in your pointy-toed shoes in the punk world, and like just you know keep going. If the instruments are falling apart, let them fall apart. Just keep hitting them, whatever that you can get a sound. Just keep doing it. Don't feel the shame. Don't let them win. You know, I, I it's it's uh it's the price we all have to pay in living in the capitalist world. They're always trying to make us feel ashamed because they always just want us to be passive consumers buying their products that are so glossy and perfect and pretty. But like, that's not a life, right? Thanks so much for tuning into the Crimson Coyote. Be sure to listen, subscribe, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Follow me on Instagram at Crimson Coyote Pod and visit thecrimsoncoyote.com for more details.